0: Well, good morning, and Happy New Year to you all. Uh, I am so excited to be here to uh, preach and to just be with you. Usually, as children's director, I'm running between classrooms fixing something or cleaning up maybe some spills or something like that. So to be able to be in here and know that the only potential, a potential spill that could happen would be uh, up here and that it won't be my problem, uh, that's good news for me. So uh, we wanted to, as Scott mentioned, go into this season of change uh, and growth and renewal in a sermon series that we're calling Prophet and Gospel, we're going to be focusing on the minor prophets, which, have you ever heard the term uh, flyover country? It's usually that section kind of in the middle of the country that people on the West Coast or the East Coast have to fly over to get to where everything's really happening. The, the minor prophets kind of function as a biblical flyover country for most of us. We kind of crack it open and we read it, and then we read some really interesting things. We see some language we're not familiar with, and we crack it open. We're like, you know, I haven't been in the Gospel of John lately. Let me go do that instead. So we want to actually sit in the minor prophets over these next uh, 13 weeks, because we believe that the minor prophets had some truth that can really guide us. It guided Israel, but it's difficult truth. So we want to be able to listen and um, take in these difficult truths, but at the same time we want to recognize that those prophets were pointing towards Jesus. And so we listen to those difficult truths and we respond to them with a lens that we get through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to be doing, um, recognizing difficult truths with the grace and the message and the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're going to start those difficult truths with the book of Malachi. If you've got your Bibles or your phones or anywhere, go ahead and flip to the book of Malachi. It's the easiest one to get to because it's the last one. Uh, So just go to Matthew and turn back like two pages and you're there. So uh, Malachi chapter 1. And we're going to start in chapter 1 and then immediately jump into uh, the end of 3 and 4. Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, said the Lord. But you say, How have you loved us? Then continuing on in uh, chapter 3. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, How have we spoken against you? You have said, It is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping His charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but put God to the test, and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. And the Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I, make up my treasured, when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as man who spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked. for They will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, when the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is God's word. So, you know, we wanted to... This series to tackle difficult truths, and Malachi really starts us off with a major, if not a central one, and that is quite simply, where are our hearts? I had a friend who went to Wheaton College, which uh, I realized this morning is where uh, one of the Earhart girls um, go. So be listening. Um, (laughs) And uh, it's a Christian college. It's an amazing school, but it has a reputation kind of like Baylor does in like all Christian schools where a part of the curriculum is getting married. And so (laughs) you go, (laughs) and my friend Alex, he was telling me these stories about how like you just see the campus just filled with people coupling, you know, almost as if, like, the day of the Lord was, like, coming that next day, and it's like, we got to get hitched. And so <laughs> you'd see these little enclaves of guys with girls, and they'd be talking, but it's was a Christian college, so there was room for the Holy Spirit. And so what they would do, <laughs> and so, but the buzzword, the tagline that was used, at least in my friend Alex's day, you'll have to correct me, um, was this, it was, uh, how's your heart doing? That was like kind of the the word to be like, this is serious. Like, I'm into you. I want to know how your heart is. And some, you know, used it with with a full heart, a good heart. And some were kind of like, really? It was kind of like the note that you send when you're in middle school where it's like, do you like me? Yes, no, maybe. It's like, can you, like, is your heart okay? Can you trust me enough? Do you see this relationship going somewhere where you can tell me how your heart is? Uh, and I remember, like, when I was dating my wife, Carolina, um, I think I, I was like, man, I got to ask her about her heart, like, all the time, because I really love her, and I want to know how her heart is, and I'm pretty sure that I have done this uh, even into our marriage we would like, how is your heart? And she'd be like, it's as good as it was yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing how we use these good things, and we kind of, we twist them into these tools, to get what we want, to meet them, for them to meet our own needs. So let me tell you a little bit about this book of Malachi and the context of who who God is speaking to through this prophet Malachi. Now you may or may not remember, but Israel had gone through this horrible period They had been brought into the promised land. They had built the kingdom of Israel. They had the temple. God's presence was wonderfully there. And then everything went wrong. Idolatry started coming into their worship. And eventually, the presence of the Lord left Israel, and the kingdom um, was broken apart. And they were exiled into the land of Babylon, and so the people were sent into captivity, a kind of a second slavery that they were in when they were in Egypt so long ago. And after a time, a new empire rose and actually beat Babylon. And this new ruler uh, made a decree that they could go back to their home to their to their home country if they desired. And so a group of Israelites started trickling in. And so they get there and they are excited. To be there. And they're like, we're going to build up our homes again. And we're going to build up our walls. And we're going to build the temple again. And everything's going to be back to normal. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. We're going to do it right this time. There's this great passage in kind of Ezra and Nehemiah. You should read those together because it really gives a lot more of the fullness of the context of what I'm talking about. But they have this dedication for the foundation of the temple. And it talks about how the Israelites sing with one loud voice, except there are the elders there who are just like, this is not right, and they're despairing. And so all the younger people and maybe some of the older are like, we got to sing louder to cover up like this despair. It's going on. It turns out that this return to the homeland, to Israel, to build up this kingdom was not going to be what they had hoped it was going to be. And we see this play out over the decades. And that's where Malachi is speaking to. He's speaking to this generation of people. This book could be anywhere from 70 to 100 years after this has happened, this has taken place. And this is what you see. You see a people that are disillusioned, that are filled with disappointment. It's a crushing place to find the people of God, the people that we remember uh, such patriarchs as Abraham and Jacob and Isaac, people of incredible faith, of King David, a passion for God, a zest for God. And here they are in Malachi's time and they are just going through the motions. Sound familiar? They become Apathetic this is who God's speaking to. This is who God is coming into their lives. And the book of Malachi is really broken up in these interesting ways. It's it's a conversation between God and his people, with Malachi kind of serving as the Greek chorus. He's giving voice to what he's seeing in the people, their true hearts, and then sometimes their true arguments back, and God's going to answer them. You see this happen over six disputations, six kind of disagreements between the people and God, which is something that is fascinating to sit and think about for a second. Six arguments with God. And we're not going to cover all of them this morning. What I want to encourage you is to go through these six, because there's so much richness and depth. We'll touch on them, but we're really going really to stay in two of them, the first one and the last one. And so we'll, we'll go ahead and jump in uh, to right here. So if you go to chapter one, verse two, we read it just a minute ago. It's a rather remarkable opening to a book. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? All right, so the love that God is talking about, he says, I have loved you. Really, he's saying, I still love you. And I should immediately give the Israelites this beating heart of hope and of joy. The Creator of the universe, the Deliverer of their forefathers, still loves them. That's incredible. But it's also uh, it's another type of love. It's a reminder of the covenant love that God has had with His people since Abraham he's calling on them to remember that this is not just a passive love. This is a love that is built on a promise that he made to his forefathers a long, long, long time ago. And he's calling the people to remember that that promise is still there. You know, what's interesting is that it also functions as a way to remind, you know, with a covenant, it's not just a one-sided thing. It's two parties are a part of this. And so he's also reminding the people, hey, you've got a part in this love. My love covers you, but also you love me, remember? It's kind of like a conversation in a marriage. Um, any person or any kind of relationship with a deep fondness, or a depth to it, if someone comes to you and starts the conversation saying, you know, if Carolina, my wife, came to me and said, um, Jay, I... I love you, but there's some things I need to talk to you about. I am immediately aware of what's going to happen. You could take that however you want. I heard some laughs. (laughs) No, but seriously, it is a conversation that she is making sure that I remember some things. That she loves me, she married me that that marriage was sealed and witnessed and that there's a covenant between us, that there's trust. It's essentially starting a conversation in a trusting, safe place. And so, isn't it interesting, God's the one who starts this conversation. God's the one who's laying a foundation for it. And it's one of love and commitment. And so the Israelites respond with that joyful heart and they say, how? How? Just marriage advice. If your wife comes to you, your spouse comes to you and says, I love you, we got to talk. And you're like, How have you loved us? It's not going to go great. You are in for a bumpy road of conversation. But that's how God starts this conversation. You know, this really reveals a lot about the people's heart, doesn't it? It's defensive it's cold, it's distant, it's a demand, really. It's God being vulnerable and reminding them of all that he's done and then people are pretty much rejecting it. The conversation will go out through or go on uh, throughout the rest of the book. And we have uh, four more before we get to where we're actually going to cover And really, just to summarize, we have God, uh, these six can really be categorized into two groups. There are three where God is exposing Israel's corruption, the nature of their hearts, how it's been corrupted. And then the final three are God confronting Israel's corruption. And so, excuse me, dispute two, God is saying, you despise me and you defile my temple. And the people again say, how, have we, how are we despising you? And God will respond with, your temple sacrifices are, are apathetic. They're not a fullness that, you, um, that I deserve. And the priests are actually allowing it. The whole system of Israel is condoning this behavior. The next one is, you've turned against me. And your wives. And the people, the men, are like, whoa, how? And he talks about how they've been divorcing their wives. And they've been going to marry women uh, that are not um, Jewish. And they're, it's not that that is the problem. The problem is that they are going and marrying uh, women who are not Jewish and starting to adopt their worship of idols. So when God's saying, you have turned against me, it's not through the act of marrying other women. He's saying it because you've adopted other people. This is deep, difficult conversation. This is a relational conversation that God's having with his people. Then next, he says, the people start to ask. They say, you know, where is justice? Where have you been? And then into the the fifth uh, disagreement, God says, turn back to me. And the people say, how? We are, how, how have we even turned against you? And God gives some, um, some, some strategies, not strategies, this is a really poor word, gives them some things to do. To summarize, God's people are apathetic, corrupt, and defensive. And they feel and act as if this doesn't have a point. This whole life of loving God, being a part of your chosen people, has no point because you're either not here or you're not acting. So, what is the point? Who cares if my offering to you is less because you're not here to accept it? We finally get to the last dispute. And this one's unique. Because God doesn't answer it with kind of like this conversation. He peels back a little bit and he tells a story. And there are three sections really within this um, story. The first one come, the beginning of it starts at verse uh, 13 in chapter 3. And God says this, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. And then he says, But you say, how have we spoken against you? And you have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. God's people are accusing him of not caring about justice, not caring about them. And then we get God's interesting response. He tells a story, moving into verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. God's making a very clear distinction. Actually, there are those who remember me. This isn't a widespread accusation of Israel that they've all given up, but it's most. But there is this small, faithful remnant of people. And God calls for it to be written down, the names of these people, so it can be a reminder and an encouragement that there are those who still believe and walk in fear of the Lord and they still follow his commands. You know, this conversation is happening because God starts it. He does it because he's leading his people to a difficult but a vital understanding. And when I'm talking about this day of justice, the day of the Lord, it's what the people are crying out for. They're crying out for you to come and be present, to end all of this difficulty, this evil that's there. And so we see in the rest of chapter 4 where that comes. God says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. God's saying, I haven't left you, but I need you to be aware that there is a day where I will fully be back. You talk about there's no justice, that I don't care about justice. There's gonna be a day where justice will be fully felt and fully heard. He says essentially this. He's breaking up these two groups of people, these two systems, these two concepts of evil and good, those who fear him and those who don't. Really, we can look at it like this. Here's what's going to happen. Those who do not have a relationship with God, who don't want to follow my law, who want to continue on in their own way, they're going to be burned away. They're going to be reduced to ash. Why? That sounds harsh to our modern ears. Why would God choose that? It's a, character, it's a characteristic of his nature. He's holy. He's just. It's not that that is a choice of, I'm going to go get those bad ones. It's those, That corruption has no place amongst me. It just—it simply cannot be where I am. But for those that do fear Him, who desire to be a part of God's kingdom, oh, what exciting things are! They, what is promised to us? Joy. People will be healed and restored. You'll go out leaping like calves released from their stall. And then he goes on throughout the rest of it, and he says to his people, as we go down into chapter four, verse four, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Know me, read my word, follow the law. And then he says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord when it comes and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and their hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Recommit, read, study, do all the right things. We can hear this message and the Israelites could hear this message and they could say, we got to work harder at loving God. I got to do everything that I can. I got I to gotta rededicate the temple. We got to build it actually bigger. We've got to make sure that I get the best sacrifices. I got to do this and I got to do that. I got to make sure that I am studying God's word all the time. That I am doing all of these things. I got to do all the right things. But you know, there's a problem in that. And the problem is this. This is exactly what the people did when they came back from Babylon. This happened with David. If you remember, go to Exodus. The people have just been delivered out of slavery. They've sung the beautiful song of Moses and of worship. They have, God has asked them to be a part of this covenantal relationship with him and they say, yes, and Moses goes up Sinai and then he's gone for a little bit and what do the people do? They're just like, "Uh uh-oh, we gotta like do something. We gotta make sure that we're doing something. Let's build a golden calf so that we can worship it because that'll be in the place of God and it'll be okay, we gotta do something. And so they they do something and they do something and they do something and they do something. Our hearts, our desires, they just keep letting us down. No wonder they became apathetic and disillusioned. The work that they were doing was not enough, and they could see it and they could feel it. What a terrible place to be in. And I would wager some of us feel similarly. This morning. So I have to ask you, where is your heart at right now? And what's amazing is this is exactly where Jesus wants to start a conversation with us. If you go through the disputations, these these disagreements between God and the people, you actually see an answer that Jesus has made to each and every one of them. It's in Jesus that we see God's love, his enduring covenantal love with his people made perfect. And who we see in Jesus, how could we not say that he has not shown us love? In Jesus, we see perfect obedience and worship because he's the fulfillment of the law, and he's the true temple. In Jesus, we see the cosmic judgment and justice, that judgment of sin, a penalty we completely deserve, and yet he took on himself when he died on the cross for us. You know, it's interesting throughout these disputes that people consistently talk about God's missing presence. But it's only Jesus who endured God's missing presence when he was hanging on the cross. It's only Jesus who's ever really felt that full absence of God not being present in his life. And it's funny, I was, uh, I was a little concerned I would go too long because I'm so passionate about this. I, I've really fallen in love with the book of Malachi, and I would argue that if you spent time with it, you would too, because I want to end like this. I've lived here in Frisco, North Dallas, for about 20-odd years. I know how this culture works, I've sat in pews, I've sat in seats where I've heard essentially a message of recommit, but recommit with Jesus. And that is good and that is right. But I'll tell you what I do. I say, I want that. I remember that. I'm gonna recommit. I'm gonna study God's word. I'm gonna be, just do all the things that I am supposed to do I'm going to do those things because it's important. That's the message that's being received right now, right? It's important. And then I'm just like the Israelites dedicating the temple. I am just continuing this broken pattern of a cold, apathetic heart. Because here's what I'm doing. I'm turning Jesus into a tool. I'm manipulating him. I'm, I'm making him malleable so that I can use him to be able to do the things that I think I'm supposed to do. Friends, that leads to nothing but disillusionment, frustration, frustration, Apathy. Jesus was not meant to be a tool to set some cosmic purpose right. This isn't going to be on the screen, the rest of it. Um, But if you go to the book of John, specifically into chapter 14, we see... The real purpose of this. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. And that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Jesus is promising that he's preparing a space for us. He's deepening that relationship with us. He also later in John 14 will say that he is the way and the truth and the life and that those who believe and follow him will be obedient like him. You know, and it's so easy to hear these well-worn passages in John 14 and start to again, start to get our hands on them, start to craft it into another tool to be able to use. And I say this with love, I've done that a million times. (laughs) This is a really hopeful, hopeful place to be in, isn't it? Don't use Jesus as a tool. So what are we supposed to use Jesus as? Well, if that's like your starting point, not a great spot to be in. We've been talking about the nature of our hearts and that's where we're at right now. I love how uh, the message translates this next section. Um, because Jesus is going to go from John 14, promising all of these things, and it leaves the disciples probably hanging, wondering okay, so how do I do this? How do I not continue to have this corrupted heart where I continue to fall short? I don't want to become apathetic. I don't want to become disillusioned. I want something real, I want something that's life giving. Go to John 15. This is how Eugene Peterson translates it in the message. I'm the real vine, and my father is the farmer. He cuts off every branch of me that doesn't bear grapes, and every branch that is grape-bearing he prunes back so it will bear even more fruit. You are already pruned back by the message I have spoken. And right here is right where we need it to be. This is the, this is the message of hope. Jesus is saying, abide in him, or as Peterson translated, live in me. Make your home in me just as I do in you. He goes on later, I've loved you the way my father has loved me. Make yourselves at home in my love. That's what I've done, Jesus. that's what I've done. I've kept my Father's commands and made myself at home in His love. Friends, we cannot do this. We can't. We, we just we can't. But Jesus could, and He did. And He did for all of us. He knew God's love so perfectly. So wonderfully, he knew his word. He was able to follow so perfectly that he made a home in it. And he invites you into that home because he wants to make his home in you. And if you are in a place right now of apathy, of just feeling like God's presence is just not here, as if, as Rick brought up earlier, that this house, this heart is too corrupted, is too messed up. The foundation is too broken. Well, if, if it's you, the craftsman, building that foundation, you're absolutely right. But here's the good news with that difficult truth. It's that Jesus is going to fashion a new heart, a new home, a new foundation. I love that in John 14, he tells us that he wants us to share in his joy. That joy, that picture of it, picture a calf jumping, leaping. It is a hysterical image because it's undeniable. You don't look at a calf jumping with joy and go, I think that it's depressed. I think something's wrong. You might think something's wrong because it's jumping, which I don't I'm not an expert on cows, but you know. But we see a joy that is so full, it causes us to leap. And that fullness of joy, it's promised. A fullness of it is promised on the day of the Lord. That's what that last part of Malachi is saying. That's why God is initiating this conversation because that day of the Lord is coming. And oftentimes that can make us nervous. But God is constantly reminding us that his home that he's built in you, this love that he has will allow you to stand in it, to be healed in it, to leap like joy in it. And while we don't have that fullness right now, it is given. We experience it when we're in worship. We experience it in being able to forgive others in a way that our broken hearts never would have been able to. We experience that joy in being amongst one another. We have God's joy because Jesus makes a heart, it he makes a home in our hearts and he gives us a new one. I'd like to, to close by giving you some time of reflection. I'll invite the band to come back up here. Um, but I want to encourage you in some things. I want to encourage you as we move on in our, in our service to be filled with that joy because you've given it over to Jesus. Rick talked earlier about what are those things that are holding you back? This is a perfect time right now to give those things over to him because what we're about to do is we're about to come before the table we're about to be able to remind ourselves of what love being built so perfectly cost and what it gives to us so freely will you pray with me almighty god Thank you for always starting the conversation with us. Thank you for loving us as only you can. Thank you for not making a life with you just about rules and about the ways that we can measure up because we know in our broken hearts that we can't we have to abide in you, that we have to have that relationship that is so deep, it's guided by your Holy Spirit. Oh, Jesus, we love you. We behold you on the cross and we thank you for your glory. We pray this in your name. Amen. Scott will come up in just a moment and I wanna give you an opportunity to prepare your hearts for communion. And I'd like to leave you with this last word. Abide, remain in the one whose heart never grows cold. Never grows cold, not just for God, but for you. Take this time.